A lot of people who have been up there and explored the area have said that they sensed a very eerie sensation. So I think those things can be both very real and they're a artifact of the things, the stories that we have heard. You're listening to Happy Vermont, a podcast about people and places in the Green Mountain State. If you're interested in haunted places in Vermont, you've likely heard of the Bennington Triangle. This was a term coined by author Joe Citro that refers to strange happenings in Bennington County, namely Glastonbury, an unincorporated town in southern Vermont with a rugged, mountainous terrain and only a handful of residents. Over the past 75 years or so, strange things have been reported in the Bennington Triangle, including unexplained disappearances, UFO sightings, and other odd activity. Jamie Franklin opened an exhibition at the Bennington Museum earlier this year called Haunted Vermont. It explores disappearances in the Bennington Triangle and the work of mystery writer Shirley Jackson, who lived in North Bennington and whose work was inspired by the strange happenings in this part of Vermont. I met up with Jamie Franklin, the museum's curator at the museum a few weeks ago, to talk about disappearances in Glastonbury, witches in Pownall, and vampires in Manchester. Here's Jamie. It's a kind of collection of stories, basically, that combine hauntings, ghosts, the mysterious, the unknown, the supernatural, starting with stories or at least accusations of witchcraft and vampirism here in Bennington County in the 18th century. It moves through spiritualism and people's desire to communicate with the dead in the 19th century, and then it moves into the 20th century, focusing on stories of the Bennington Triangle, and then kind of concludes with the work of Shirley Jackson, who I have kind of lovingly dubbed um, the queen of, of Gothic fiction, who lived and worked in North Bennington from 1945 to 1965. And so she's tied in to many of the themes of the exhibit, and she's featured in a couple of spots throughout the exhibit, but then the exhibit kind of both physically and kind of thematically and conceptually ends with Shirley Jackson. It draws on real history, local history particularly. It draws on folklore and fictional ghosts as well, particularly with Shirley Jackson. Though Jackson's work, I think one of the reasons I love it and I think it's so compelling is that it interweaves both real stories, real things that happened in the real world, both in her own life and around her. And then she fictionalizes it. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between fact and fiction. And that's one of the things that I think makes stories, like all of the stories that are told in this exhibit, wonderful, is that there's always an element of the unknown. How did you come up with the idea and like blending kind of the Bennington Triangle with Shirley Jackson? I mean, it you know, now it's like, oh, how, not how obvious, but like that's yeah, Perfect. Yes. So, I mean, I've lived here and worked here at the museum for 18 years. And I think you can't really live in Bennington and not hear about the Bennington Triangle. I have a son who's now 10 going on 11. And there was a period maybe three or four years ago when he was six or seven. And I don't know how it happened. He kind of became fascinated with the Bennington Triangle. And I mean, again, I've heard the stories. I've knew the basics. But we started diving into like 
podcasts and YouTube videos online, and they were seemingly endless. Um, and so the Bennington Triangle, Shirley Jackson is also a kind of cultural figure as the curator here at the Bennington Museum. I'm familiar with her work. I've heard about her work. You know, I've even, you know, I've worked with some of her children now for going on 10 plus years, have known them in various capacities in the community and in the larger kind of Bennington cultural world. So a lot of the stories and people that are featured in the exhibit have kind of been swirling around me since I've, I've lived here for the last 18 years. And how many pieces in the exhibit are from Shirley Jackson's family? The physical exhibition, you know, there's maybe two dozen or more books featured, displayed on the wall, not as you would a bookcase because we featured books that had nice front covers, so we face them outwards. So there's numerous books. There's a letter that she wrote. There's a manuscript from one of her early stories about a presumably haunted house. There's a haunted postcard that she wrote a story about. There's a haunted music box. There's the table that she wrote many of her last works on um, in the family dining room in North Bennington. There's photographs of her. So there are dozens of items related to her. We use them to tell at least a half a dozen or more stories connected to her interest in hauntings, ghosts, and kind of the macabre and uncanny. Right. And I read that there's a Shirley Jackson Day here in Bennington in June. I think it happened, there used to be a pilgrimage, and then it COVID, it didn't happen for a couple of years, but something maybe was put on. Yeah, by so Shirley Jackson Day happens on or around June 27th, which is the day of the lottery. Um, of course, the lottery is, is her most famous short story and kind of how she became famous. And that was published in The New Yorker on June 27th, 1948, I think it was. So Shirley Jackson Day is on June 27th, which is the day of the lottery in the story. Shirley and her husband, Stanley Hyman, moved here in 1945. He got a job teaching at Bennington College. There was a period of a year and a half or two years where they actually moved to Connecticut for a short period. But between 1945 and 1965, they lived in North Bennington for most of that period. And he was connected to the college for most of those years. He was a literary critic. He was quite famous during his time, of course. Shirley is far more famous today. But yeah, they moved there in 1945. She basically became famous around 1948. Mm. She lived and worked in North Bennington for the rest of her career. So basically, all of her famous work was written right here in North Bennington. And she was here during those disappearances. Yeah, exactly. So the first disappearance occurred in 1945. Paula was a student at Bennington College in 1946. She did know about it. I mean, we know that she knew about it and it influenced her work. We have her missing girl story in the exhibit. It was first published in 1957, but it was very directly inspired by Paula Wilden's disappearance. So again, I've tried to intertwine Shirley Jackson and her stories, her writing, and the way that she was connected, whether it be her interest in witchcraft, her publishers played up that she was the only practicing witch that was an author. She specialized in the minor black arts, they said, on the dust jacket to the lottery. So she's connected to that. She's connected to the Bennington Triangle directly or indirectly. Jackson's kind of seen a bit of a renaissance in the last five to 10 years. And there's been a Netflix series that's kind of roughly based on the haunting of Hill House. And then there was a Hollywood film called Shirley that was actually based on, and it very directly ties 
Paula Weldon's disappearance to Hangzeman. And, you know, it's a Hollywood movie with somebody as famous as Elizabeth Moss playing Shirley Jackson. So I think she's really lasted the test of time. And I think for some reason, right now in the 21st century, there's a particular interest in Jackson and her work and the stories that she had to tell. So the Bennington Triangle is a loosely defined geographic region. I mean, Glastonbury Mountain is kind of the epicenter of it. Joe Citro, who is an author and folklorist, who is really kind of one of the leading figures that has been writing about and disseminating stories about kind of Vermont in particular's ghostly past, kind of the supernatural. And so I think he coined the term in like 1992. For me and for this exhibit in particular, I really focus in on the missing persons. So there were, depending on where you read, who you read, what you kind of classify as part of the Bennington Triangle, at least five cases of missing persons that are well-documented between 1945 and 1950. And all of them happened within about a 10 to 20 mile radius of Glastonbury Mountain. Many of them happened in the woods. They were hunters or guides that were in the wilderness. One or two of them happened nearby. So Glastonbury is, you know, 10 miles, 20 miles north of Bennington. Um, one of the cases happened about 10 miles north of there. So within about a 20 mile radius of Glastonbury Mountain, these disappearances happened. Other people, Joe Citro and others, have also talked about UFOs, abductions, cryptids, which is basically just a, a fancy word for fanciful creatures like Bigfoot and others that might exist in the woods that might be the reason behind some of the disappearances. But again, for the exhibit, I've really tried to hone in on the missing person stories. And so one of the, Paula Jean Weldon, she was a Bennington College student. Mm -hmm. She went out, disappeared while hiking yep. in the mid-1940s. Yeah, so Paula Jean Weldon was 18. I believe she was a freshman at Bennington College. She was from a fairly well-to-do family in Connecticut. She came to Bennington. And on the afternoon of December 1st, 1946, she told her roommate that she was going to go for a hike. And she hadn't returned the next morning. I think that was a Saturday on Sunday morning. She hadn't returned. Her roommate reported it. And because Weldon's father was fairly well-connected, there was basically a massive manhunt put on other students at the school, local police agencies. And basically, because there was a huge investigation, we know a lot about what we think we know about her disappearance. Um, there were eyewitnesses that say she hitchhiked to the Long Trail or the Appalachian Trail, which is just east of here in Bennington. And she was wearing a red coat. She was wearing sneakers. She's said to have left Bennington College at around 2.30 in the afternoon. On December 1st, the sun sets at about between 4.15 and 4.30. She was said to have been setting off on the trail not too much before 4 o'clock. So there are a lot of questions and mysteries about what we know and why she might have been going for a hike. But the bottom line is that there was a massive manhunt. Not a shred of evidence was ever uncovered that led to anything. But again, she was one of only at least five, what I refer to as kind of the canonical Bennington Triangle disappearances. So they began in, in 1945. Before Wella disappeared in 46, there was Mitty Rivers, who was a 75-year-old hunting guide. He got separated from his party. 
never seen again. This was just outside of the Glastonbury area again. Then about three years to the day later, from Paul Weldon's disappearance on December 1st, 1949, one of the more interesting cases was James Tetford, who was a veteran. He had um, fought in both World War I and World War II. He was only in his 60s, but he was already at the Vermont Veterans Home here in Bennington. A story goes, he was originally from northern Vermont. He had been visiting family up in the northern part of the state. He boarded a bus to return back to Bennington. And eyewitnesses say he was on the bus at the last stop before Bennington. And when they arrived, he was gone, but his, his suitcase, his belongings were still there, and he was never to be seen again. So that's the third. Paul Jepson was an eight-year-old boy whose mother took him with her. She worked, I think, at the Shaftesbury way station, the dump, and they had pigs there, and she was going to feed the pigs. She had Paul wait for her in the truck, and when she came back, he was gone. And one of the more interesting stories related to that was that they said, again, obviously search parties were sent out to try and find the young boy, and sniffing dogs tracked his trail to about the head of the long trail where Paula Weldon was last seen. And then the last of the well-known cases was Frida Langer, who disappeared just a couple of weeks after Paul Jepson, and this was in the fall of 1950. Frida Langer was a 53-year-old hunter with a lot of outdoor experience. She slipped and fell into a creek. They weren't far from their camp. She says, oh, I'll just go back to the camp. Don't worry about me. And when her party returned, she wasn't there. And she was the only of these five kind of canonical cases whose body was ever found. They did fairly extensive searches that fall, but they didn't find her body until May of the next year in 1951. Because of decomposition, they really couldn't determine a cause of death. So even though they found a body, how she died was still a mystery. Where did they find her? Um, that was just outside of Somerset Reservoir, which is just east of Glastonbury Mountain. Right. Yeah. So Paula Jean Weldon she's the one you hear about. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. the Vermont State Police was formed kind of in response to that? Yeah, that so like I said, there was a pretty massive manhunt in the month plus after her disappearance. Her father was well-connected. He was a bit upset by what he saw as blunders. There wasn't a Vermont State Police at the time. There was the local police. He brought in investigators and police from Connecticut where he lived. There wasn't apparently very good communication between all of the parties. And so as a result of that, the Vermont State Police was founded in 1947, the year after Weldon's disappearance. And so it is a direct outcome of that case and the belief that there needed to be a statewide organization that could better coordinate manhunts and things like that that went beyond town borders. And so the last disappearance was early 1950s in that area. Yep, yep, fall of 1950. I mean, again, other cases come up. We tell the story of the Bennington Triangle in the exhibit through a Pulp Magazine article. I think it's titled What's Wrong in Bennington? And it actually goes through seven cases, but two of them, one is from further away in Vermont, and I don't know if the author didn't just understand the geography, that it's not really connected to Bennington in any real way. Another one was a girl who I think was attending Burr and Burton at the time, and there was evidence that she was kind of eloping with somebody that was in the army, and she might have hitchhiked to South Carolina or somewhere in the South and intentionally disappeared. So she's not featured in. And then there was even one more case slightly earlier of a Carl Herrick, who was another hunter 
who was out, and he was another one of the few bodies that was found. And when you read about the Bennington Triangle, this was in 1943, his body was found three days after he disappeared, and the cause of death was to be determined that his ribs punctured his lungs as though he had been squeezed to death. When it was first reported in the news, they said, oh, he must have shot a bear, his gun was found nearby, he thought it was dead, he might have been going to inspect it, it was still alive, and it grabbed him and squeezed him to death. People who are interested in the Bennington Triangle often say, Bigfoot. There were tracks next to the body that were bigger than a human's. Well, the newspaper articles say that there were bear tracks next to the body that were larger than a human's. So again, it's these stories that have very real kind of people and circumstances as far as we know them. And then they often kind of get blown up into other kind of folklore, which is how folklore works. Yeah, exactly. And you hear a lot about the Bennington Triangle and, and Glastonbury Mountain, and, but there's also other interesting pieces here in this area. I know last weekend there was a folklore marker placed down in Pownall, and this was about another woman called does she go by Widow Krieger? That is how the story has been. We do know her real name. Yeah. Um, her name was Margaret Krieger. Margaret Krieger. She was born Marguerite Schumacher and married Johann Yuri Krieger. So Widow Krieger, or Margaret Krieger as we now can confidently call her, was married, as I said, to Johann Yuri. He eventually went by John Greger, which was kind of his anglicized name. Her anglicized name was Margaret. So they were what were referred to as Dutch squatters. So this southwestern corner of Vermont wasn't, quote-unquote, permanently settled by basically colonial settlers until the 1760s. But there were Dutch settlers that were connected to the New York colony. And so Johann Uri Krieger built a mill on the Hoosick River down in Pownall, what's now Pownall, in the 1740s, before pretty much anybody else had really settled this area permanently. And his wife, Margaret Krieger, um, and him lived there, worked the mill. When Pownall was kind of established in 1760 by the New Hampshire governor, named after a former Massachusetts governor, they granted Krieger land because he had built this mill and he had improved the land and basically they needed a mill. And so they formally gave him that land. He passed away about 25 years later in 1785. And around that time, we believe his then widow, Margaret, was accused of witchcraft. And so in the 18th century, dating back to the 17th century, of course, we're all familiar with the Salem witch trials, but really they're just the most famous of dozens of cases that have been recorded in the history books of people being accused of witchcraft. And so this was fairly late in that period, but I came across newspaper articles from the Vermont Gazette, one in particular from 1801, where the author referred to his 35 years. So he was a fairly young man at the time, but dating back to his childhood, which would have been in the 1770s, around the time of the American Revolution, he said that you'd hear a witch story every week. Back then, it was attributed to witches. You know, if somebody was carried off out of their covers in the middle of the night on a flight through the night sky, it was witchcraft. But then just a couple of decades later in 1801, it was maybe he was just having a nightmare. Maybe he had indigestion. But in the 1780s, the story that's passed down to us is a single published story. T.E. Brownell was a panel resident. He was well-respected. He was a lawyer. And he wrote a chapter on Pownall's early history that was published in the early Vermont Gazette, which was edited by Maria Abbey Hemingway, which is a very famous 19th century 
Vermont town histories. And so Brownell tells the story of Widow Krieger, or Margaret Krieger, as we now know her to be, who is said to be a quote-unquote extraordinary woman. That's the only real kind of premise upon which she was accused. Of course, the real reason is likely because she was a widow. They had kind of only begrudgingly given her husband land because he had built a mill and they needed it. Women in the 18th century weren't legally allowed to own land. Their three children had already moved south to Williamstown, where Margaret had actually been born herself. So she was basically there, and they wanted the land, likely. And so they accused her of witchcraft. The story, as Brownell told it, was that she was brought before a safety committee which said that they would test her by either putting her up in a tree and cutting it down. If she survived, she was a witch, or dunking her in the Icy Hoosick River. They chose the Icy Hoosick River for whatever reason, which was a very common test for witchcraft, dating back to the 15th century in England. They would dunk women, and occasionally men, accused of witchcraft into a river. And if they sunk, they were witches. And if they sank often leading to drowning. They were not witches, but oftentimes they were bound and tied up. We have images of of people being dunked and they're often tied in rope. So our guess is that they dunked her, she sank. They were able to luckily save her. Of course, that doesn't take away from the trauma of being both accused of being a witch and being dunked in the icy Hoosick River, but that's the story of Widow Krieger and Margaret Krieger. And so one of the reasons why I, I love both the story of the Krieger witch trial and the Manchester vampire is that they provide us with insight into women's history and how women were treated in the 18th century. Not well, it turns out. And so I think one of the reasons for including those sorts of stories into this exhibit is it does give us real historical insight into what people were afraid of. So I included a a quote at the beginning of the exhibition, and it's actually from an introduction to The Haunting of Hill House when it was published in 2013 by none other than Guillermo del Toro, who of course is the famous director and producer of largely horror films these days. And he wrote, to learn what we fear is to learn who we are. Horror defies our boundaries and illuminates our souls. And I think when talking about the Krieger witch trial and the Manchester vampire, it's this idea that in the 18th century, people were afraid of empowered women. (laughs) The story of Widow Krieger is fabulous. The story of the Manchester vampire is another case in which Rachel Burton, was a young woman. She married Isaac Burton, who was, again, a very respected man in Manchester. He had fought in the Revolutionary War. She died of what they referred to back then as consumption. We now know it as tuberculosis in 1790. Isaac Burton, her husband, remarried shortly thereafter. Hulda Powell was his second wife's name. They were married for about a year before she became sick and also died of consumption. And again, there's only a really a single historical account of this by a John Pettibone, again, a well-respected Manchester resident. It's a handwritten kind of early history of Manchester, which is now resides in the Vermont Historical Society's collection. We've borrowed it for this exhibit. And so after Isaac Burton's two wives died, I would assume if they believed in vampires— Tuberculosis is a bacterial disease that we now know often affects the lungs. People cough up blood. And so maybe Isaac Burton was a vampire, but no. They accused the first wife, Rachel Burton, of being a vampire. And as Pettibone wrote the story, the friends and family of Burton became infatuated with this idea that Rachel Burton was a vampire. They actually disinterred her body, 
Whatever her remains were, her organs, her heart, her lungs, were burnt in a public spectacle on a blacksmith's forge. They're said to be 500 to 1,000 people there present in order to, as a sacrifice to the demon vampire. Demon vampire is actually a word that Pettibone used. That's the story of the Manchester vampire. Again, Rachel Burton is buried in the Factory Point Cemetery there, just behind the new Manchester community library. I say new, it's not that new anymore. It's a few years old, but, and there is a a Legends and Lore marker that was erected just last year, again, to commemorate that story. And so that's what this exhibition, you know, it draws on these stories that are based in real, real history, maybe get built up over time. You know, the earliest accounts of both the Manchester Vampire and the Krieger Witch Trial are both from the 1860s. And so they're written some 70 to 80 years after the actual events that they account. And of course, a lot can be embellished in those years. So I'd say there's very likely probability that both things happened because history bears it out. You know, there was a whole thing called the New England Vampire Scare. In fact, again, you think 1790s vampires, they still believed in that. But in fact, the case of Rachel Burton was one of the earliest vampire scares. There's another one that happened in Woodstock, and I believe that was in the 1830s. So they continued to believe in vampires up through really the the mid-19th century, which has tended to be less common. Once you got into the 19th century, they tended to be 17th and 18th century occurrences. But it's these sorts of stories that that the exhibit is built around. Definitely. And I noticed when I first came across the exhibit last spring, I saw, I think on the website or a marketing piece about it, is this black and white photo of an old covered bridge that I think was torn down in the 1940s. And it was, they called it Haunted Bridge, but maybe its real name was Red Bridge. Yeah, yeah. So it's an early 20th century postcard. It's a wonderfully kind of eerie, sepia-toned photograph of a covered bridge, which was a real covered bridge that we believe to cross the the Hoosick River. Today, it's in a kind of -of out-of-the-way place, basically behind today's Walmart here in Bennington. But anybody who's familiar with Bennington, and particularly old Bennington, Monument Avenue goes up the hill from the museum where we're sitting, would have gone basically right through where the monument is, is now today and down the hill across the river and reconnect with what is today basically Vermont 7A. And so this postcard tells the story that at night you could hear horses' hooves crossing the bridge with nothing in sight. I tried to research this and dig up any other stories associated with the quote-unquote haunted bridge. I came up with nothing. But that said, the idea of haunted covered bridges, again, something that has become a very kind of deeply embedded part of Vermont folklore. I think probably the most famous one is Emily's Bridge up in Stowe. And again, you know, I was doing research and there was an article written within the last decade where somebody tried to really dig deep and try to find the origins of the Emily's Bridge story. You know, and there are multiple, as with folklore, often multiple versions of the story. I mean, the basic premise is that Emily was betrothed. She went to the bridge. Her bow didn't show up. And she either hung herself, jumped into the river, killed herself. And ever since, the bridge has been haunted. This researcher dug in 
And to the best of their knowledge, she found somebody who claimed to have started kind of telling the story just to scare kids in the 1970s. By the 1990s, a local tour guide had kind of adopted it as a part of their kind of tour of local historical landmarks there in Stowe. And so this researcher basically came to the conclusion that this was just a marketing ploy. But then you look back at this postcard from 1910, right around there, we might have been using ghosts to market Vermont for over 100 years. Right. But it's so interesting because you feel a certain eeriness of some of those places. I've been to Emily's Bridge in Stowe a number of times, and there's a certain look and feel about that bridge when you see it and when you're around it. And one time when I was there, I was with my daughter and I wanted to take some pictures of it. And she was still very young at the time. And I was in the car and then I looked behind me and I saw a deer right behind me. And I just like took a picture with my phone and thought nothing of it and was like, oh, what a beautiful deer. And then maybe a year later, my husband and I were driving and I wanted to show him the bridge and we drove and two deer ran out right in front of our car. And I was like, no, the story has nothing to do with deer, but it was just one of those things. It just mm -hmm. was eerie. And it was like, what is that? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure, you know, if the Red Bridge were still up, would there be a certain feeling around it, right? There are still three covered bridges. They're yeah. still very real here. And when we're driving through them at night and I maybe have my son in the car, I'll stop in the middle of them and try to scare him <laughs> a little bit. Maybe scare myself a little bit too. But actually, you know, I've loved ghost stories since I was a kid. And I love history. And I love the way in which folklore, ghost stories, and history interact. And that's really one of the premises behind this exhibit. So I mentioned I kept the, the Bennington Triangle story in the exhibit really to the missing persons because yeah. we have documentable fact that real people that really went missing, presumably died, who knows exactly what happened. But Joe Citro and many others have told about a lot of different lore associated with the Bennington Triangle. And one of them is the story of the man-eating rock. And that one interests me mainly because there is an actual rock along the long trail, not far off the trailhead. So if you're driving east out of Bennington on what is Vermont Route 9 and not more than a few miles out of town, what is the Appalachian and the long trail, because they run concurrently here on southern Vermont, is a trailhead. There's a parking lot right there on the north side of the road and you can hike up and it's about a 45 minute hike fairly steep to get to the top where things start to level off and you're at the top of the mountains. And right there before you reach kind of the area where it plateaus off, and I think the trail may actually go directly through it, is what is I generically refer to as split rock, but I've also seen other people refer to it as split rock. And it is a large, maybe... 12 foot tall. I know a little bit about geology, so it's called a glacial erratic. Um, it was a very huge stone that was probably pulled through here by the glaciers 10,000 years ago. And when they melted, they were just dropped in the middle of nowhere, seemingly as these big, huge rocks. Why are they there? This one happened to have a big seam of quartz running through it. And over time, that quartz water probably got in there and it's freezing and expansion. Over time, it's split. And it's just wide enough, maybe three feet wide, that you can walk through it. And so for the last 10 years or so, every New Year, around New Year, it's not always on New Year's Day or whatnot, myself, sometimes my son and my partner will go up with me. I go up there and we just make it a ritual to go up to the split rock. And I just invented this ritual, by the way. We close our eyes, we walk through it one at a time, and we make our wishes and hopes for the New Year. 
So it's not a man-eating rock, but it is a rock that could eat a man because <laughs> you literally walk into it like you're walking into something. But so there are these stories. And I'll say, you know, I mentioned that my son was really interested in the Bennington Triangle. He was maybe six or seven at the time. He didn't like hiking on the long trail. He says, is, is this the Bennington Triangle? And I said, yeah, it's kind of. And he didn't like, like I, I wanted to bring a rock home. And he was like, why don't you just leave that, Dad? <laughs> um, so, I mean, there are still kind of, I think these stories build up so that people have these associations. And so, yeah, I think there are a lot of stories of people feeling eeriness. I've never actually hiked anywhere near Glastonbury. It's not an easy hike. It's I think it, you technically have to do an overnighter if you're really hiking to it. But a lot of people who have been up there and explored the area have said that they sensed a very eerie sensation. So I think those things can be both very real and they're a artifact of the things, the stories that we have heard. They build up over time. And that's what I find fascinating about this is that fact and fiction commingle into something that's way more interesting than anything that's made up or anything that's wholly real. Yeah. And the rock ritual that you have, mm -hmm. you like, you're a his historian in many ways, right? Mm -hmm. So you like seeing old cemeteries, you like old ghost stories. Mm -hmm. This area and this job is like perfect for you, right? It is. Yeah. So I actually grew up in the Pacific Northwest outside of Seattle, but it was maybe a somewhat atypical childhood. My father was really passionate, maybe even obsessed with early New England architecture. And so the house that I grew up in was a reproduction of a 1760 Connecticut salt box. And Deerfield, historic Deerfield, which is just, you know, an hour away from Bennington in, in Western Massachusetts, and filled with old 18th century homes, was kind of what I referred to as my, my father's mecca. And that's kind of what probably drew me in. I know a lot of kids probably try to run in the opposite direction of their parents' interests. For some reason, I actually got hooked, and it's what ended me getting interested in kind of early American art and history. And I ended up coming out this way to go to Williams College. And this job opened up right as I was graduating with my master's degree. And I've been here ever since. So it, it is kind of the perfect place, the perfect job for me. I mean, the Old First Church Cemetery, which is one of the most beautiful cemeteries and churches in New England, is right behind the museum. Where Robert Frost is Robert buried. Frost is buried there. And Bennington definitely has a historical aura. For somebody having grown up in the Pacific Northwest, where anything before 1950 was considered old, you move here and I'm friends with people who can trace their genealogy back to the first settlers of Bennington. You know, the Dewey family, Charles Dewey, is a friend of the museum on the historical society. His family's lived in Bennington for 250 plus years, and you really can feel the history. So yeah, no, it's, it's a pretty great place to work. The Haunted Vermont exhibit goes through the end of the year. What do you hope people will feel or learn when they go to the exhibit? Well, I mentioned the Guillermo del Toro quote, to learn what we fear is to learn who we are, horror defies our boundaries and illuminates our souls. And I think each story has kind of maybe a lesson embedded in it. I'm not sure I could encapsulate each. It's probably personal for everybody. You know, Widow Krieger, you know, Shirley Jackson wrote a children's book about the Salem witch trials in 1956, which of course was at the height of the Red Scare and communism. And, you know, the idea of being careful of false accusations, mass hysteria, those sorts of things are 
very real lessons that we can still learn from today. You know, this desire to communicate with the dead. Spiritualism wasn't a fringe phenomenon in the 19th century. You know, I was obviously doing research and trying to dig up facts about it. Something like one in every three person in America at around the time of the Civil War had some belief in spiritualism and the idea that you could communicate with the dead. So, you know, that idea, you know, Ghost stories are things you should be scared of ghosts, right? Well, in the 19th century, people actually wanted to connect with what we might refer to as ghosts today. So I think each story kind of has its lessons. You know, Shirley Jackson's work, many of the protagonists in her work are young women who are dealing with the strictures of American society in small town New England in the mid 20th century and pushing against it in very real ways. And it doesn't always end up well for them in terms of their pushing up against expectations. And so I think each of these stories has something to teach us both about history and, of course, as a curator, as a historian, I think and believe and hope that history always has something to teach us about our world and who we are and what we might strive for moving forward. You can learn more by visiting BenningtonMuseum.org. Thanks for listening to Happy Vermont. I'm Erica Housekeeper. You can find more podcast episodes, Vermont stories, event listings, and Happy Vermont merchandise on my website, happyvermont.com. Thanks so much for listening. Take care and talk to you soon.